Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. My guest today is Mervon Meda. Since 2009, Mervon has been the Executive Director of Performing Arts for the Royal Conservatory in Toronto. He oversaw the successful launch of Corner Hall, the conservatory's stunning 1,100-seat concert venue, and is responsible for programming the successful series of classical, jazz, world music, and pop concerts, as well as overseeing all of the other performances and events throughout the conservatory's home at the TELUS Center for Performance and Learning. Mervon's career in the arts has seen him on both sides of the curtain. A student of the late Sanford Meisner, Meta has performed as an actor in over 100 theatrical productions, including residencies at the Williamstown Theater Festival, the Citadel Theater in Edmonton, and two seasons at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. He has made several appearances on television and in films. In 1994, Meta put his theatrical career on temporary hold and joined the Ravinia Festival in Chicago as programmer for their pop concert series. In 1998, he became director of programming and added the title of director of production in 2001. In February of 2002, Meta was named the, the first vice president of programming and education at the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts in Philadelphia. Under his leadership, the Kimmel Center brought an array of talent across many genres of music to the city. Mervan, it is such a great honor to have you as our guest today. Thank you so much for being here. Sure, my pleasure. Well, I recently received your 15-16 season brochure, and I want to read just a few highlights for our listeners. The Royal Conservatory's 15-16 concert season will feature almost 90 concerts, including a sold-out gala with Meryl Streep. Other highlights include the Buena Vista Social Club, Vienna Boys Choir, and so much more. If you don't mind me asking, how did Meryl Streep end up being your guest artist for the gala? Uh, well, it was a bit bit of a serendipitous thing. Um, she's only done this once before, um, and that was as a as a benefit, I believe, uh, in Princeton uh, on campus at Princeton University, and and I had I had heard about it. Uh, the Takash Quartet, who she's going to be performing with, are old friends and have been here several times uh, in our in our first six years. Um, so any opportunity to bring them, and I said to them, you know, you want to bring your friend Merrill, and they said. Uh, We'd love to, but this, this was a one-off thing. She did in Princeton. That's probably not going to happen again. It was a favor to some people, and, and she kind of stepped in um, to that role uh, because it was originally planned to be with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, as we know, um, sadly passed away. Uh, so she did it as a favor to some other people. Um, anyway, so it wasn't wasn't going to happen. Um, uh Luckily, though, I had a kind of ace up my sleeve because the architect of our building, uh, a brilliant woman named Marianne McKenna, um, happened to uh, be happens to be uh, one of Merrill's close friends uh, and roomed with her. And when they were both at Yale together, so I said to Marianne, "If uh, I never ask you to pull any favors to your famous friends, uh, but in this case, would you mind?" Uh, sending Merrill a little note saying we'd love to have her. And Merrill had been here before to see the hall when it when it opened and we met and um she was quite taken by the the architecture and the sound and everything. So uh selling her the hall was not a was not an issue. Um and um you know two days later she said sure I'd love to do it. Um but this is this I think is gonna be the only other time she's ever gonna do this project. Yeah wow. 
it's eminently tourable, but I don't think she has the time or the or the uh, uh, the schedule to be able to do that. Right, right. Well, hey, that's that's really wonderful. I'm glad that worked out for you guys. You know, and by the way, if she happens to be looking for representation, you you know, feel free to put my name in the hat. I'll I'll <laughs> let her know. No problem. Her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really great. Um, so let's talk about your season. One of the major themes that you guys are doing is the to celebrate and honor the 10th anniversary of Katrina. It's certainly a milestone in its own right for everybody who was affected. Being in Toronto, how did you decide to incorporate that into your season and, and why? Um, well, I mean, let's let's start with the fact that the music from that part of the world, whether it's New Orleans or any other part of the Gulf Coast, um, is is fabulous, and there's, there's always a good excuse to to feature artists from from there. Um, so musically, there was there was all all sorts of reasons to do this, uh, but. You know, we we all remember, or uh, in fact, as I, I've been talking about this series, people say, "Oh my God, it was ten years ago! I can't believe it. it sounds like seems like it was just yesterday." And you know, I was living in in Philadelphia at the time uh, when it hit. Um, we were just about to open our season at the Kimmel Center uh, in September of of 2005 when when the the, the hurricane hit. Um, we quickly morphed our opening weekend uh, into uh, fundraiser for for people in, in, in the region. Uh, we did a concert with The Roots um, uh, and Jill Scott and Music Soulchild and a bunch of other people, and all the proceeds for that concert went uh, to Hurricane Relief. Uh, Tony Bennett um, was was the next night on, on the schedule, uh, and, and he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't donate his fee, but he donated a painting uh, that we auctioned off and raised uh, quite a bit of money um, uh, for it. And then we had Solomon Burke, uh, and he uh, donated part of his his fee also to to Hurricane Relief. The next year, in in the I guess it would have been the the 06-07 uh, season, uh, Danilo Perez, who was my artistic director in Philadelphia, and I were thinking about what what to do that season as a theme for our jazz concerts. And it was it was painfully obvious to us that there were so many musicians like Henry Butler, for instance, who had lost not only their their home but their piano and their and in his case his Hammond B3, he was airlifted out. I think he was living in in um, Denver, Colorado, or Boulder, Colorado, or something. Um, I mean, his whole life uh, turned upside down. You know, and not to mention the fact that that you know he has other issues that that make it even more difficult than than most people that were were affected because of his blindness. Uh, so you know, he lost his home, he lost his neighborhood, he lost the people that he was playing music with, he lost his instrument. Uh, what do we do to help him? And so we decided in Philadelphia to, to bring him, and, and we, I think we did ended up doing five concerts of musicians who were either dispossessed of their home and their their livelihood, um, and just to give them gigs. Um, it, it was to, to remember what happened in New Orleans and just to get them some gigs and get them back on the road again. Uh, and it was wildly successful in Philadelphia. And I thought uh, 10 years later, you know, uh, those of us who have been to New Orleans since then, you know, the, the French Quarter is all, you know, spruced up again. But there's still a lot of devastation. There's still not enough um, money flowing to, to rebuild certain um, wards down there. Uh, and then on top of that, 
um, we have to remember that Katrina didn't just hit New Orleans. It hit Haiti, and it hit Cuba uh, as well, and it hit uh, other parts of the Gulf Coast. So this the series ended up being a six-concert series uh, that we're going to do next year of, of music from Haiti, Cuba, uh, all around the Gulf Coast uh, region, starting with Buena Vista Social Club. Uh, Jane Bennett, the great Canadian sax player, bringing her all-Cuban, all-female band, Makeke. Uh, Emmeline Michelle from, from Haiti. And then we go to the Gulf Coast with and Henry Butler will be back um, on the series, as well as Marcus Roberts and, and Brian Blade from, from Shreveport, Louisiana. And Terrence Blanchard is going to play the music he wrote for Spike Lee's documentary, When the Levees Broke. Um, so it, uh, you know, it's going to be a musical love uh, love fest, uh, but also you know we'll, we'll be able to shine a light on, on, on that part of the world and, and make people you know, realize this. It's, it's, it's just not about uh, you know, beignets and, and um, hurricane drinks. It's uh, some, some real devastation and a loss of life uh, and not a lot of uh, support from various levels of government. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, all the things you're describing, too, are, I, I suppose the positive that's come out of it is um, the way the arts community has really rallied to support whether it's an individual yeah. individual musician such as Henry Butler. Well, yeah, or, I mean, what, yeah, and and, and yeah. you know, I talked about this with Winton. He was here a few weeks ago uh, uh, visiting Toronto or uh, doing a concert, but he came he came to see uh, our hall and and to to meet us. And I was telling him about this, and um, he was quite moved because obviously you know we know that he and you know, the Marsalis family, Alice uh, and the rest of all the boys, um, along with Harry Connick, have have done a lot of work to to. Uh, Build community, build housing for, for, for especially for musicians um, uh, that were that, that lost their homes. Yeah, I, I would imagine it's going to be, you know, it's always going to be a part of what happened. It's not, I mean, ten years, like you said, people can't believe it. It was ten years ago, and yet still, there's so much rebuilding that needs to be done. So I think that shining the light, as you said, on uh, the occasion is certainly going to help. And I and I have no doubt that the community. Really appreciative of everything you guys are doing. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, and uh, you know, on the other side of the coin, uh, these are all great artists, and and they're going to sell tickets, and and the shows are going to be amazing. So, uh, um, it it fits very much into you know our whole you know programming ethos of, of just bringing the best players that we can find, no matter the genre, and um, and and finding an audience. And and I have no doubt we will find an audience. Sure, absolutely. I, I have no doubt either. Um, well, you know, I was hoping to sort of have you talk a little bit about um, your experience as a, as a uh, presenter in a couple of different of the cities you've worked in. And specifically, you know, in the intro, I talked about you worked at Ravinia, obviously Philadelphia, and now you're in Toronto. You know, when you look back at your experience um, in those cities, what sort of challenges did you sort of uh, come up against within each city, and then conversely, what, what 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 was unique about each city that you were able to take advantage of? Um, well, it, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, the the three kind of institutions I've worked for in, in the last you know fifteen, seventeen years, whatever it is, uh, have all been kind of um, 
have all had you know history or or an expectation of being kind of great palaces of of kind of high art or classical music. You know, Ravinia is certainly at the home of the Chicago Symphony and all the chamber music they've been doing for for you know 50, 60 years. Um, not that they didn't do jazz and world music and and pop music, but it was it was fairly low key. Um, when I got there, um, with, with a few exceptions here and there, um, and, and I was able to, you know, kind of persuade, I guess, the board or you know, the people that hold the purse strings to, you know, why not bring Tito Puente to Highland Park, Illinois, um, where there was, you know, not a big Latin music built-in Latin music crowd, or why not bring Caetano Veloso, um, and we proved that there, there was an audience for that. Um, you know, we also brought um, lots of other things uh, as well. You know, Bonnie Wright played there, and Lyle Lovett had never played there before I got there. Um, uh, uh, so every every season, we we I tended to you know throw a few things into the mix that that would expand the audience, hopefully. And and f for the most part, they worked. We had a, we had a few things that didn't, um, but uh, for the most part, they worked. When I got to Philadelphia, um, it was a brand new center. Uh, but it was seen as, you know, this is the home of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and and um, I remember sitting down with with a, a classical uh, writer from the Enquirer, um, who you know took me out to coffee when I the first week, and I, I told him what kind of my plan was. I hadn't booked anybody yet, but my plan uh, was, and and he said, well, you know, I, I I'm sure you're going to bring all the great uh, classical soloists. Uh, uh, and I said, yes, I am. I plan to, and uh, but I also plan to bring Oscar Peterson. I also plan to bring, you know, Winton Marsalis. And I also plan to plan to bring Eartha Kitt. Um, and he looked at me like I had just flown in from Mars. And the the, the attitude was, almost, he didn't say this out loud, but the attitude was, you, you know, you're going to sully this beautiful new hall with. You know, pop and jazz and amplified music and and oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know who this. You know, I don't, I don't like this. He he, he started to fidget, um, and I said to him, I said, if 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 we're building, you know, two hundred million dollar concert halls over the, all over the country, and we don't think that an Oscar Peterson belongs on the same stage as Yo-Yo Ma, then we're going to have a big problem going forward because. Absolutely, there's room for Oscar Peterson. In fact, he should be front and center. And in fact, my opening night of of the Kimmel Center, which was the second season, I, I kind of came in the first half of the first season. But my my opening night of of my first season of booking was that Cecilia Bartoli was, did a, a recital at two o'clock, and Oscar Peterson and his quartet did a concert at eight o'clock, uh, and that was the opening of the second season. I think it it kind of Showed that the public and uh, and the donors and the the, the the press in Philadelphia that this this was not just going to be a palace of one genre of music, um, and I brought the same kind of mentality to the Royal Conservatory, which is a classical music conservatory. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about that. We 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 train the next generation of of classical musicians. There are some jazz concert uh, jazz classes, but it really is a classical music institution from an educational point of view. Uh, and when I was asked to come and, and open the new hall, uh, I said, you know, if I'm going to come, I'm I'm not just going to do piano recitals. 
uh, I, I want to bring jazz. I want to bring world music. Uh, I want to bring a lot of Canadian artists, but I want to bring a lot of international artists. And, and the president here, um, who's a great visionary, said, well, that, that's why we're talking to you, because that's exactly what we want. We don't want it to be just, uh, you know, a, a narrowly focused uh, enterprise. And I think, you know, the, the best presenters, best programmers, curators around the world that I, I look up to um, uh we pretty much have the same feeling, and it's it's a very different time now than it might have been if I was programming in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where you know this venue does this and that venue does that, and and there's no no uh, interaction between them. And my uh, I'll date myself. My iPod um, has lots of different music, and sometimes I'm I'm in the mood for Mozart, and sometimes I'm in the mood for Prince, and um, and everything in between. And I think more and more people, especially of you know much younger generation than I am uh, grew, grew up with multiple genres of music and they can appreciate Ornette Coleman as well as they can appreciate um, you know uh, hip hop or or Bach um, and why not you know we, we eat lots of different kind of food we go to lots of different kind of movies why don't we all go to lots of different kind of music and appreciate it uh, you know as, as at the level we can appreciate each thing right right well that's a really good point and certainly uh, over the years many audiences audiences have clearly benefited from your forward thinking. Um, just to hit on one thing about your current season, because there's a connection there. You had mentioned Oscar Peterson, and if I read correctly, you guys are going to honor his 100th birthday by doing a special... Uh, 90th birthday. It's Sinatra's uh, 100th, Billie Holiday's 100th, Edith Piaf's 100th, uh, Yehudi Menuhin's 100th, but it's Oscar's 90th. I'm sure we'll do a, a big celebration for his 100th as well. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about this concert. It, um, it's it's actually you know since we announced it, it's uh, the Chicago Tribune has written about it, and French newspapers in Quebec have written about it, and all all across Canada and and, and the U.S. Uh, the, the the project is uh, was kind of brought to me by Kelly's um, by, by Oscar's wife Kelly Peterson, um, who lives in Toronto, and and uh, we're very close friends, uh, and. She uh, has Oscar's uh, big, you know, Bosendorfer Imperial Grand. That's that's the Bosendorfer that has the extra octave of of black notes at the at, uh, on the bass end, um, and it's been sitting in Oscar's house. Uh, in his, he built a studio in his house uh, in Toronto, and it's been sitting there uh, since he bought it in 1981 or 82. It's never left the house, um, and you know, he's been gone for almost 10 years or a little. A little bit more than ten years, I think. Um, and uh, she wanted to invite a lot of people, a lot of pianists that that he admired, that that he had a relationship with, that he mentored, to come and play the piano and play his music on the piano, not to not to play you know kind of standards, but to play his music on his piano and 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 make a, a record of solo piano um, uh, pieces. And so she invited Chick Corea, and he said yes. And she she invited Bill Sharlap and Rini Rosness and and Benny Green um, and. Uh, Gerald Clayton, um, uh, Makoto Zoni, uh, Hiromi, uh, all, all sorts of people. And of course, they all said yes. Um, uh, Ramsey Lewis, uh, another one. Um, and she's still um, figuring out some timing for a couple of other, you know, very large names that that uh, were huge fans of Oscar Peterson. And so, so Kelly has made this record um, and came to me and said, you know, we're going to announce it sometime in the f fall. Do you think we could actually? 
get all these people to come and do a concert. And so we started calling them and said, you know, we're going to do a one-night special concert. We're going to bring Oscar's piano from his studio uh, onto our stage for one night only. It'll be the only time it'll ever be heard in public. Um, and um, we put it on sale on Tuesday, and tickets are flying out the window. And so Benny is coming. Um, Kenny Barron is coming. Rini Rosas and Bill Charlap are coming. Uh, Gerald Clayton, um, uh, a local pianist uh, who is probably not very well known in the States, but uh, is going to be soon. Uh, his name is Robbie Botosh. He's a, a Roma uh, musician that moved to Toronto uh, back in 2000. Uh, three or four, I believe, because um, he had to get out of out of Hungary because of persecution of the Roma people, and he, he brought his family, and he chose Toronto because this is where Oscar Peterson lived, and he thought, you know, maybe there's a chance I'll actually meet him, and, and of course he did, and Oscar was blown away by his talent and became his mentor, um, and and Robbie's a phenomenal, phenomenal pianist. Just just released a, a record with Jeff Tane Watson and Bob Hurst. Um, here in Toronto and uh, has become a, a, a very close friend of, of us at the conservatory. So I think we have it so far eight or nine pianists and we're still working on a couple more to, to come and, and do this, this live, live show. Which wow. Hopefully yeah. we'll, we'll video, videotape or live stream so everyone can, can enjoy it. Uh, I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I mean, what a, an absolutely great way to honor Oscar's legacy. I mean, this is incredible. Yeah. It's really great that you guys are doing this. Um, well, I think most talk, most people in the yeah. states also uh, most people in the states also. Uh, I remember when I brought Oscar to Philly, uh, some reporter said, "Isn't it great to have this 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 wonderful African American pianist opening the Kimmel Center season?" And I had to call and said, "Excuse me, not African American. What do you mean? Oh wow, he's not American. Well, what do you mean he's not American? I said, he's born in Montreal. He lives in Canada. He's lived his whole life in Canada. Uh, he's yeah. not an African American. He's a Caribbean Canadian. If you want to, if you, if you have to." Put a uh, you know a, a pigeonhole an ethnicity to him. He's a he's from Saint Kitts uh, in the in the Caribbean, and he's he was born and raised in Montreal. Um, and a lot of people don't you know they just assume oh great jazz pianist he's black and he's, he's must must have been born in Kansas City or New Orleans or Chicago or whatever. Um, so I mean, from an Oscar standpoint, that, you know, becoming a star that he was uh, had an extra little wrinkle to it because he was uh, he was not from the you know, birthplace of jazz. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, you touched a little bit about this when we were when you were describing the differences in working in Chicago and Philly and, and now Toronto, but and this is something I'm really excited to hear you talk about specifically your approach. Uh, to curating, right? The art of curating. I mean, what is you? You have so much experience doing this, and and what 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 is your approach to doing it? Do you is it? Do you have a similar process you go through each season? Do you always start with a blank canvas? What, what you know? Uh, it's it's yeah. I, I would say it's it's pretty blank. I mean, I know I'm going to do X amount of jazz concerts and X amount of piano recitals and X amounts of, of you know classical vocal or chamber music and you know um, X amount of world music. So I, I kind of have a a number in mind and it's it's never definite. But but we do about you know between 85 and 100 concerts a year. Um, so a certain percentage of that is going to be classical. A certain percentage is going to be um, non-classical, and, and then divide that into jazz and world music and pop. Uh, but then I just start seeing who's got interesting projects. I mean, we, we have a 1,100 seats, 
So I'm not such a slave to you know sound scan reports, uh, new new product, new records coming out, new albums. Um, you know, it certainly helps if if someone has a has a new record. And but you know the days that the record company would you know plaster ads all over the place and and the the record retailer in town would would uh, have an in store or you know, a huge poster. Those are those are gone. So. Uh, it's nice to have a new record to to tour on, uh, but I don't really care, frankly, if, if if it's an if it's a great artist with with something to say. Um, so I just look for for artists that that um, that uh, are appealing to to me personally, and and hopefully if they are, then they're appealing to other people as well. Um, I, I guess it, it comes down to artists that uh, that really have. Uh, an interesting something new to say to to their people to the to the audience they're playing for, um, not necessarily just a new record, but really something new to say. Um, what's the conversation, musically speaking, that that is going to happen? Um, and if I can find those people with interesting projects uh, that I that I know we can we can sell enough tickets for, then then I book them and um, find a way to pay for them. Or find a find a sponsor if it's too expensive from from just the ticket sales, um, and slowly but surely the season starts to take shape, and then usually what happens is there'll be you know two artists that I've, I'm quite interested in, and oh look they're both from New Orleans. Hmm. Wait a minute, isn't it the tenth anniversary of Katrina this year? Why don't we do a whole series based on the tenth anniversary of Katrina, uh, and that sort of takes shape that way. Um, I, I don't really go in with preconceived ideas. I love hearing you describe this, and and actually that's exactly what I was going to ask. So you, well, maybe it depends, but so generally you focus on the artist, what the music is, what you know, what the artist has to say, and then kind of come up with a theme around it. Um, for example, yeah, and and guys, not everything is yeah. not everything is themed. I mean, we certainly have one-off concerts that are just interesting people that that uh, have an interesting interesting project that have no no correlation to anything else I'm doing. Um, and I have you know, because we do so many concerts, we we have that leeway. Uh, but this year we have we have the Katrina series. Uh, we've done a whole retrospective of all the Beethoven string uh, 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 string sonatas in past years. Uh, we've we focused on composers. Um, this year we have a bunch of hundred birthday uh, artists or tributes. Um, we also have a series called uh, uh, Quiet Please. There's a lady on stage, which which is uh, six concerts, I believe, of great female singers. Uh, from Lisa Fisher uh, to uh, um, Joan Armatrading, who's an artist I've been trying to get to, to present for 20 years, and finally it happened, um, uh, to Renee Marie doing her Eartha Kitt um, uh, uh, concert that, uh, that you know you and I first talked about a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago. Right. Uh, and uh, it, you know, because I, uh, I I had her in mind and I had Lisa Fisher in mind and um, um, and a couple of people dropped out at the last minute and a couple of people were added. Suddenly I have six concerts of these great women um, who can all sing their behinds off, and um, we decided to package that as a series and and, and call it Quiet Please. There's the lady on stage, which is the title of an old Peter Allen song that. Uh, he wrote after going to a club to hear Dusty Springfield, or so the legend goes. Uh, and, and there was a bunch of yahoos sitting behind him at the club who didn't shut up and 
didn't listen to Dusty, and so he got so pissed off he went home and wrote a song called Quiet, Please. There's a lady on stage. And I thought that was a great title, uh, so we just stole it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love hearing you describe this, the, the level of creativity that you bring to the table in terms of um, curating everything and, and, if possible, you know, creating a theme around it. It's really it's really fun to hear you talk about. Um, this leads pretty well into another thing I wanted to ask you. With your background as an actor, and again, I mean, you've performed in over 100 theatrical productions. Would, would you say those experiences have helped you in your role as a presenter? Um, I think so, per- peripherally. I mean, w- a couple of ways. One thing I- I've always done, and, and um, it's not because I need more stage time. I've, I've, I've had my time on stage. I, I don't really need to be up there anymore. Uh, but I almost always um, go up and introduce the artist uh, to the audience. It doesn't matter what, what genre we're in. Um, and I do it because... Uh, First of all, it comes easy to me, and, and I'm, you know, I can get up there and tell a couple of jokes and, and tell a funny story or an interesting story about the artist to put it in context. But I think the audience also then kind of over time gets to understand that they're coming to our house uh, as our guest to see a great artist or some, some great music. And it's not just going to a, a kind of a, um, a cold venue, uh, but they're really coming to, to a place that, that takes care of them uh, and, and it's like coming to you know if I have, have friends over to my house for dinner you know you make sure that the, the, the living room is picked up and you know there's a fresh towel in the bathroom and the, the lights are on and uh, you vacuumed um, and we do the same thing in the concert hall you know every night is, is a, you know, we do only one almost always just one night stand so every night's kind of an opening night uh, and a closing night at the same time uh, and we're inviting a bunch of our friends to, to experience the artist uh, so we like to make it very kind of homey uh, for them. So that's that's one. Uh, the other thing is because I've been on stage and I've been you know in dressing rooms and been on on the road and on tour uh, uh, as an actor, not as a musician, uh, but very similar um, I think aesthetic to it. Um, you kind of understand that you know bad dressing rooms really don't help you do a good performance, you know, not having a hanger to hang your coat up uh, when you get to the venue, having really bad coffee sucks, um, and having really bad food sucks. And, you know, so if if we can do anything to to make the make the, the, the offstage uh, environment, you know, palatable, interesting, friendly for the artists, all that's going to happen is they're going to be happy and they're going to do a better show. Uh, for my people that are, that have bought tickets, right? Um, and if we piss them off and and the food is lousy and no one says hello to them when they when they come in the venue, then they're gonna you know it's gonna it's gonna translate onto the stage. So I tell yeah. all my staff from from crew to backstage staff to box office, you know, the artist is here generally for one night. Let's do everything in our power to make make the situation for them as comfortable and as happy and as wonderful as it can be so that they do the best performance they can possibly do. Um, and guess what? If they're jerks, and and we know there are some of those in the, in the world, there are some artists that, that uh, just don't understand um, what we're trying to do, um, guess what? They don't have to come back. Uh, and there's, there's lots of there's a lot of people out there who are great artists, and you know I'm not going to name names, but there are there are a few people that I know could sell my hall out instantly without lifting a finger. But over my dead body will I bring them because they're jerks, 
and and there, and there are very few of those. I must say, there are very few of those. There are a handful. Uh, and 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 then on the other hand, there's so many people who, you know, when they come back to the venue, or maybe someone I haven't seen since since Philly or even Chicago, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and they go, oh my God, you're here now. This is so great. Well, you know, thanks for inviting me. And I say, thanks for coming. This is so wonderful. We're, you know, by the way, we're sold out. Everyone's happy. Um, and it's just a, it makes a really easy night. Um, and there's no tension. It doesn't need to be tension. You know, it doesn't need to be road managers screaming at people because of merch percentages. And, you know, it's, it's the joy of working in a 1,100-seat house. I don't need to worry about four-truck shows that, um, you know, no one sees the artist until they walk on stage. You know, we, we do we do chamber music, you know, chamber music-sized things, even if it's pop or jazz or world music or, or classical. You know, it's all, it's all we're all friends uh, for the day. And uh, I think that pays off for the audience. Right. Yeah. Well, and everyone, everyone will want to come back. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You're creating a great experience. And I mean, certainly, uh, taking care of artist hospitality pays dividends. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't cost you much. Like someone says, oh, you know, can we get an extra this or that? And I like, well, yeah, of course, you know. I mean, to an extent, you know. Um, the only time I say no is is, is uh, when you know we're, we're losing way too much money because we just haven't sold the tickets, or or frankly when the artists or the road manager are such jerks that I was like, you know what, no, f you, we're not you're, you're not getting an extra cab yet because you've been a pain in the ass all day. Yeah, um, yeah, and, well, it's amazing too. I mean, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, you know, one of my all-time favorite performers and all-time favorite people is Mavis Staples. Uh, who I've known for for many years now. Well, we have a hotel right across the street from us. I mean, literally, you you could go from the hotel door to our stage door in 13 seconds. Um, but you have to cross a, a, a four lane street with a with no stop sign or no no light. Uh, so if you want to go to the light, it's a, it's a block and a half down, cross and a block and a half back. Well, she had had a a, a knee replacement surgery and she couldn't walk two blocks and then and then expect to be on the on the stage. So I took my car and I I picked her up at the hotel, put her in the car. I did a U-turn uh, and took her out of the car um, uh, to to drive her across the street. Uh, it didn't cost me anything, but you know five minutes of my time. But you know little things like that that just make it easier for her. Like why wouldn't we do that? And and the and the really good presenters, the really good good um, um, uh, centers, the the, the the good curators, the the good venues. You know, people want to go back and play them, and, and they get it. Uh, and I, I was trained by by uh, some really good people at Ravinio. It was my, my first big job, and we had a we had a general manager and, a, and an executive director who who understood exactly what I'm talking about, and kind of made me understand it. And and from an artist's point of view, because I, I was on the road, and you know I, I played with I, I do narration still with with symphony orchestras two or three times a year. In, in lovely venues, and you get to the dressing room, and it it's you know hasn't been cleaned in 14 years, and there's not a glass of water or a, a towel. Uh, and you think, you know, did they know I was coming? Like, pay attention and and make it a little bit easier. Um, and it's not it's not about the green M and M's, you know. That, you know, right. it's just about people being you know friendly and and opening up their their home. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing, too. I mean, there's certain, 
you know, being on the other side of the table, I mean, you, you just listen to the feedback you get from the own artists that you're working with. And every now and then you kind of realize, oh, we're not necessarily going to work with this organization or presenter again because of all the things you're talking about that they didn't do. Um, but, yeah. but I mean, like real basic things, too. So it is interesting, especially given how small this community really is. Um, yeah. you know, you'd think that everybody would certainly be acting in everybody's best interest. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 so much more fun to come to work and work twelve fourteen hour days if people are pleasant to each other on 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 all sides you know the venue side the road manager side the artist side um, you know the, there there are artists that that I you know as I say I've, I've booked two or three times and um, they look at you like they've never seen you before in their lives and that they've never gotten a check from you in their lives and. Uh, if it's Tuesday, it must be Toronto. Uh, you know, if, if that's their attitude coming in the door, uh, I know that's their attitude when they get on stage, and so I'm not really interested in that. Right. No, absolutely. Well, there's so much I want to ask you about. I know we don't have that much more time. Um, you know, again, given just the incredible experience that you've got and you've you have over all the years that you've been doing this. Kind of looking ahead, I mean, what are some new trends that you, you're seeing starting to emerge in the fine arts landscape? That's a pretty open-ended question, but I'm wondering, you know, your take on maybe how technology has impacted things or it could be anything, but I'd just love to hear, you know, when you kind of look ahead, what is it you see kind of emerging that might be new? Uh, well, well I, I think you know, a couple of things that, that trouble me um, is is uh, the state of of symphony orchestras, uh, especially in North America. I, I can't really speak for Europe as well, but um, symphony orchestras um, are dying left, right, and center, except for the, you know probably ten major markets. Um, people are are not going anymore as like, like they used to. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but I think the symphony orchestra world has to be shaken up. By its bootstraps and 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 create new ways of of presenting and and playing and fee structures have to be different. Uh, you know, uh, union wages have to be different. Um, the way we market has to be different. I mean, that that's clear from you know the the demise of the print. When I started in this business you, in Chicago, you, you put a full-page ad for your season in the Chicago Tribune on the first day of sale, and you know half of the half of the shows would sell out with with that and, and your brochure. Those days are gone. Um, but the 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 notion of you know 40 weeks of a symphony orchestra season in a single community and every show different artists, but every show starts with a, an overture and then we have a piano con- or a concerto and then we have an intermission, then we have a big symphony and we go home. Those days are are, are sadly going and and it's going to have to be a big shakeup. Um, and that's the bread and butter for a lot of a lot of performing arts centers is, is their symphony. Um, the other thing I see uh, at, at performing arts centers uh, is they've really become commercial for profit. They're, they're run like commercial for profit um, venues, um, and then they do a little kind of uh, quote unquote art, you know, uh, once in a while to make sure they can keep their not for profit status. 
but basically they're they're roadhouses for Live Nation or for any other big big uh, um, promotion company, and that's not what the tax dollars and the donor dollars went for. I, I see that happening all over the place. We, we we had all these performing arts centers in the in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even in the 2000s. Um, Spring up because cities wanted uh, you know, their own performing arts center, so they could they could bring all these great artists from around the world, and and then they get them built, and then they can't they don't run them properly, so then they run out of money, and all of a sudden um, they're just become you know more venues for Live Nation to fill with. Um, I'm not saying everything is is, uh, is is totally commercial, but mostly very commercial things that uh, that are not part of the. Of, of the art scene, they're part of the entertainment scene, and and we we are confusing art and entertainment uh, a lot. I mean, look what's on television. Look what's look what passes for for um, art um, um, on on our stages sometimes. When when so you think it can dance is the big tour that goes out to a performing arts center. I think we're in a lot of trouble. You know, we're not booking. We're not booking Elvin Ailey because we can't sell it, but we're booking a week of So You Think You Can Dance um, or, 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 you know, one of those shows, a live version of those shows. Um, and I, I, you know, I was accused in in Philadelphia mostly of, of being a, an elitist snob when I said stuff like that. But, you know, Elvin Ailey's dance, the Elvin Ailey Dance Company means something. Those people have been trained. There, there are, that's, you know, there are artists who are, are have choreographed and uh, have thought about, and there's a history, and there's a, a legacy, and there's new work coming out all the time. Um, and the fact that that a lot of people can't, won't take a chance on that, uh, really bothers me. Um, I, w- I was told at a, a, a performing arts center kind of coalition meeting there was you know, 10 or 15 programmers from performing arts centers around the country, around the U.S. at one time, um, that they just don't do jazz anymore. Well, what do you mean you don't do jazz? It doesn't sell. And, and, and it was just dropped. Jazz was just dropped. It doesn't. It doesn't sell. Well, what have you tried? What have you What have you changed? What have, Which artists have you tried? Uh, well, we brought Winton, and it was you know it was expensive, and that's the only one we can sell. Uh, well, what else have you done? You know, th- this is you know speaking as a Canadian, but speaking as a, as you know an American with an American hat on. This is our music, um, and what do you mean it it doesn't sell? Figure out why it doesn't sell and fix it. Don't just go away. Um, and uh, I see that happening too often, which is why I like working in an 1,100-seat theater, not a 3,000-seat theater, because I can have much more flexibility and leeway to what we do. Yeah. You, well, you just made a, a lot of really great points and, and some interesting uh, insights into what's kind of happening right now. I I think we're just going to have to have you on for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I mean it's been almost 45 minutes. I, I mean I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Um, maybe I can ask well, you now. You know we could figure out another time to do a future episode because you've sure it's been really well, great. I, I, you know it'd be interesting to uh, to get um, a few of the other people you've interviewed, uh, uh, like Rob Gibson, a, a friend of mine, and I think we we think we think along the same lines a lot. Um, uh, and um there there are, there are some really good 
venues out there and some really good smart programmers out there uh, who I rely on. I think you know we, we have a, we have a, a kind of um, you know listservs for for, um, for you know what was hot, what was good, what you know what was interesting, um, and, and we try and you know piggyback on some things that were that are that are good. Um, and so the, the the future is bright. We do this this. We just got to make some changes along the way to to what we've always done, um, and you know, there's some smart people out there. So I, I'm I'm looking forward to the next 20 years. Oh God, I'll be I'll be too old. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, yeah, I, I I think I'll still be doing this 20 years from now. Oh, my wife doesn't kill me. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My my wife might kill me because I'm never home. But uh, that's well, another thing. Well, there you go. It's a labor of love. Um, yeah. All right. Well, listen. I I don't. You know. Again, we're just going to have to do another episode. Um, but I I want to thank you so much for your time. I mean, I hear. You know, I've only been to Toronto in the bitter cold of winter, so I hear it's beautiful in the summer. Hope you can get get it out is. and enjoy it a little bit. It's yeah, it's beautiful in the winter too. You just got to dress appropriately. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, come on up anytime. Uh, we're we're happy to be working with you know new uh, energetic um young agencies and managers and that that are doing business the right way. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And again, thank you very much for your time. Um have a great weekend. Ravan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Yes, bye-bye.